Welcome to everyone joining today. We will get started at the top of the hour. Welcome to everyone joining the Journal Club today. We will get started in just a moment as folks get into the room. All right, let me go ahead and get started with our housekeeping. Uh, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director for the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. I'm glad you're joining us for um, today's 
Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Um, this is the first in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB. Um, so we'll be hearing from best article and best research brief winners and their finalists, along with a high impact articles, um, which is what we're hearing from today. Um, the article that was published, the authors um, present today had the article published in 2020 and has already received um, 26 citations. So um, we are excited to have them with us um, to share their research and presentation today. So before we begin, um, captions are available if that is um, something that you would like to use during the webinar. Um, we have a copy of the presentation. I am putting that in the chat so you can um, download the presentation slides and follow along. Uh, we'll take questions at the end of the presentation, so please put those in the question block so they can be moderated to our panelists. Um, when you when the webinar ends today, you'll see a short survey and appreciate your feedback on this session as well as always ideas for future webinars. Um, the webinar is being recorded, uh, so watch for a follow-up email in the next day or two that'll include the link to the recording, uh, your CEU certificate for your live attendance, as well as the slide handouts. Um, so I will turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, who's the teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today, our presenters are here to talk to us about their paper, and I would like to start by introducing Dr. Gabriella McLaughlin, an assistant professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences in the College of Public Health at Temple University. Dr. McLaughlin received in-depth training in implementation science and chronic disease prevention as a research associate at Washington University in St. Louis. Current application Current applications of implementation science reflect a variety of topics pertaining to health disparities in cancer prevention, addressing food insecurity in underserved communities, school health policy implementation, and community approaches to obesity prevention more broadly. Dr. McLaughlin is deeply committed to improving implementation of evidence-based policies and programs that address health equity through pragmatic approaches. Dr. McLaughlin is joined today by a team of researchers, including Margaret Reed, who's joining us from Rhode Island, uh, Carolyn Vega, who has a master's in public health and is a registered dietitian, who is the associate director of policy analysis at Share Our Strength, and also Dr. Carolyn Dunn, who is also a registered dietitian and located in South Carolina, who is joining us as the former fellow of uh, NOPRIN work group that helped facilitate this work. So they're going to be sharing with us today about feeding students during COVID-19, related school closures, and nationwide assessment of initial responses. So at this point, I can hand it over to our presenters. Thank you, Dr. Filippo, and thank you everyone for coming. I'm just going to start sharing our slides now so that you can kind of see and help us walk through this project. Um, here we go. All right. So yes, as um, our amazing hosts at Drainy B have asked us to kind of present and give an overview of our project. So we're really happy to be here. And uh, it was a massive team effort. And so more than just the authors that you see that authored the paper, we have so much to thank the NOPRIN um, and HER groups for. And we'll kind of talk through how that sort of structure helped us kind of get to where we want to be. So just some disclosures, some of the work that we'll talk about um, was supported by um, 
the RWJR TDC and USDA, but it wasn't directly funded by them. Um, and then some of the work that I'll kind of end with is from a NIH-funded KL1 award, um, which kind of takes a lot of the findings that we saw in this nationwide overview, and then really applying them much more locally in the city of Philadelphia, where I'm currently working. So I'll kind of talk to some of that as well. And I'll pass it off to Caroline just for a few minutes to kind of give an overview of our actual group and how it started and all the things that have been accomplished. Thank you so much, Gabby. Um, and thanks so much, everyone, for being here today. I have to say this is an incredible opportunity to present on work that was done uh, by a, a group of researchers who were really brought together by some unprecedented events um, and found a way to really drive through and kind of make a difference in, in the ways that we could. Uh, so I want to start off by providing a little bit of context about, you know, in which the paper was really made possible. So as, as Gabby mentioned, many of us were on, many of us on this team were actually at a conference in Denver in March of 2020, right before school closures started happening. Um, I actually remember getting on the plane and being the only person flying from Denver back to Boston at the time um, because of, you know, travel issues and things like that. And it was at that conference and shortly after um, that Dr. Spychacker and Hager created what is now known as the HER NOPRIN COVID-19 Working Group. Um, and HER, again, standing for Healthy Eating Research, which is a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and under the leadership of Dr. Mary Story and Deputy Director Megan Lott, who we appreciate support so much from on this wonderful project. Um, and NOPRIN is, is NOPRIN standing for CDC really supported nutrition, obesity, uh, policy research and evaluation network under the leadership of CDC and Dr. Heidi Blank, um, as well as the University of California, San Francisco, under the leadership of Dr. Hillary Segelman, Seligman, excuse me. Uh, at one point, the work group had a tremendous growth um, and tremendous membership and its rapid ability to, as I mentioned, really pull together researchers, over 600 researchers, advocacy organizations and practitioners, as well as ultimately really building an incredibly strong student network to do the type of work that we're going to be talking about today. And today's paper fell within one of the subgroups of meals during the instructional breaks. Cabby, can you next slide for me? And I'll say too, I had the privilege of serving as not only a member of the working group, but also as a fellow, um, working with many, many virtual hours with this wonderful leadership of the team, including our HER and NOPRIN liaisons, Kristen Arm, Lindsay Miller, and Ronley Levy. Uh, the team created an infrastructure in which we could really translate where possible research into action and again in an incredibly timely manner and where we ne really needed to build evidence again often using collaborative but unfunded approaches like the ones that you'll hear about today. And to echo Gabby, uh, we were really tremendously grateful for the support of this journal, which ultimately helped us publish more than five papers from our broader COVID group to really push them out into the public during the pandemic, including the one I did examining the launch of SNAP online guidance. Uh, I apologize, Sheila, one of our fearless leaders was unable to join us today. She had a meeting conflict, but she also asked that I ensure that we included countless thank yous to the journal staff here, really to all of SNEB membership, leadership, participation for their help in disseminating this research and ultimately awarding uh, a work group, the ACPP Healthy Policy Promotion Impact back in 2022. Again, it was truly an honor to be recognized and we had such a fun virtual award recognition ceremony. Next slide, please. 
Dr. Fleischhecker also asked that I make sure to emphasize the incredibly critical role that Gabby played, not just in this paper, but in other papers, projects, and next steps in that work group. Uh, Sheila really called on the first outlining the paper, could really assess school closures and related communications, and is indebted to Gabby for immediately really stepping up to that call and helping figure out what would ultimately be more than 50 states in creating a thoughtful framework for evaluating the nutrition education relevant components of the communications that we looked at. And as you'll see today, we were so incredibly lucky to have Gabby's leadership in this paper, um, as well as many of the other projects that we worked on. As I said, she is one of several amazing COVID rock stars um, and others are highlighted here on our slide. Next slide, please. We are also here, uh, including today's featured paper co-authors, Dr. Emily Hecht or Amzi and Margaret Reed. And Margaret, you'll hear from at the end of the presentation today to learn a little bit more about the current activities of the working group that I mentioned that she now chairs, um, co-chairs with Dr. Lauren Clay. Next slide, please. So now that we've moved through most of the thank yous, I'll get us started off by giving a little bit of context in which the paper that we're gonna to discuss today came about. Um, so to get started, I was asked to draw from a paper that I really had the honor to lead that drew some attention to the importance of school closures and childcare closures during the COVID-19 pandemic. That paper has now been cited more than 200 times um, and this New England Journal of Medicine commentary really was an opportunity for us to explain how COVID-19 spread throughout the United States including through schools and childcare facilities that were really balancing their role of helping to prevent disease transmission, protect students, children, and staff members, as well as families, while also ensuring access to food for children who rely so heavily on the federal nutrition safety net. So together, the U.S. Department of Agricultural, National School Lunch Program, School Breakfast Program, and Child and Adult Care Food Programs serve nearly 35 million children daily, delivering, as we know, vitally important nutrition and financial assistance to families in need. And with those types of programs interrupted, an essential element of the COVID-19 response had to be considering how to continue feeding families and children who were low income. Meals and snacks from schools and child care centers fulfill up to two-thirds of children's daily nutritional needs, as we know, and are also generally healthier than those brought from home. So the short-term effects of missed meals, including fatigue, reduced immune response, and increasing the risk of contracting communicable disease. But even brief periods of food insecurity, we know, can cause those types of long-term developmental, psychological, physical, and emotional harms. And we also know that children from households that are low income who are already at higher risk of poorer health and poorer academic performance than children from higher income households may be further disadvantaged by these types of nutritional shortfalls that we were seeing during the early days of COVID-19. Lost access to school meals also really highlighted that fragile financial health that families in the federal nutrition and safety net face on a daily basis. So when schools and child care centers close, children missed out on food services worth at least $30 per week. And the true cost of families of feeding children is probably higher, but this figure doesn't account for time spent purchasing or preparing foods or the higher price of retail foods as compared to schools' bulk purchasing rates. And that increased food-related financial burden can bring harm to all household members by forcing families to ration food or undergo or forego other critical needs like medication, utilities, and rent. And the early COVID-19 situation was, as we all know, unprecedented. And it was unclear in the early stages how long school closures would last. 
So local educational authorities, such as school superintendents and school boards, were permitted to apply approaches from USDA's summer feeding programs and have been encouraged to ensure that the needs of children from low-income households have been met during extended school dismissals. However, we also know that many schools lacked experience with summer feeding initiatives, which really relied, uh, which really reach only about one in seven children who usually receive free or reduced price meals during the school year. And summer programs don't follow the same strict nutritional standards as school breakfast or school lunch programs. So in the early stages of our analysis, the USDA had begun using new congressional authority to release national waivers for mealtime and congregant meal setting requirements allowing schools to adopt innovative approaches to providing meals and to practice appropriate social distancing. And I'm so excited now to turn this over to Dr. McLaughlin, who'll take a little bit of a deeper dive into the objective of the paper we're discussing today and the methodology behind it. Thank you so much. Um, that was a really amazing overview. And again, as you could probably tell, Caroline or Dr. Kinnis, probably one of the best people to speak to the policy lens here because of um, her new amazing role at the USDA. And then like with this, it's one of many articles that just came pouring out <laughs> in the first year or so of the pandemic because um, a lot of people just really hard at work trying to decide what's happening. So I'll dive into the study a little bit better. As Caroline mentioned, we really wanted to understand how US states DC, different territories and jurisdictions were trying to respond to an overall um, unprecedented event. And so the initial information that was put out in the first six, seven weeks of school closures was really critical. And we tried to do a rapid cycle review of how this information was being disseminated, such as waiver tracking, where school meal sites are being placed, the quality of guidance provided by state and other um the authoritarian uh, level decisions and then just overall what seemed to be happening through document analysis and um, policy dissemination and so what this kind of looks like is we began to collate every state or jurisdiction or territory um, website whether it be through the department of education or agriculture and some states did on that and what we did was we tried to understand initial quality of response or initial kind of comprehensiveness of what this response looked like through a few different um, kind of categories or what we call it criteria. And these emerged over time. Initially, we were just looking to see what's being said and how is it being given out and what's the implementation guidance. And then it slowly evolved into seven different key facets that we were looking at. And then as we were kind of sharing data with the NOPRIN group and with other key personnel, one of the things that we were trying to figure out was, okay, well, how is this corresponding with, with number of meal sites available? How does it correspond with other policies that are happening, other waivers that are actually being implemented? And so what we found over time, and I'll show this in, in, in a minute, but basically that we were seeing different things in different states at different times, and we wanted to try and find a way to look at that in a rapid cycle fashion. So um, every week we really looked at the data and we tried to come up with some kind of reasonable criteria and so these are essentially on that left-hand side here. So we looked at not only declaration in terms of what was it mentioning in terms of school meal provisions, um, what about school closure declaration, were there any mentions of provisions in those declarations that came from you know, the top of that state or territory jurisdiction? What, were the, what was the information being provided on school meals, um, whether it would be on the COVID landing page or other? 
were their school meal sites open, what were the dates and what were the hours of those school meal sites, the guidance for communication and maybe outreach to families and was that actually comprehensive or trying to get some kind of um, guidance across to schools and districts in those states and territories. And then these last two really kind of dealt with what guidance was being given regarding emergency law implementation. So beyond just pointing out the waivers and really kind of going into some nitty gritty of like, how do we actually implement this? To also partnering with an anti-hunger or other advocacy organization. And so these things we felt became really important and almost a nice way for us to um, try and elucidate or illustrate what was happening in real time. And so we had sort of what we would see as low, moderate or high in terms of the quality of what was being put out there to basically just try and assess the situation. So overall, and these are the findings that we got from, from the end of the, the review. And so what I'll say is whilst we are kind of analyzing this graph, we also wanted to try and tease out in a qualitative way what some examples that we were seeing from these low, middle and high responses. And so trying to tease that out, hopefully is gonna help people prepare for when we have a next pandemic or another issue to deal with or other school closures due to you know natural disasters or climate change. You know, how can we actually start with the best information possible as opposed to starting with maybe a little bit less than we were hoping or just overall huge variations in quality of communication? So as you can see here, um, the low is the darkest and then the moderate is that sort of light gray and the high is our um, lightest gray. As you can see, the, the highest rated categories across the country were typically where states were able to put out information about meal sites. And often this looked like a interactive map or dashboard for folks to find where the nearest meal site was. We also had lots of um, really strong responses where states would actually refer to their um, their meal implementation guidance and they would actually have really nice linkage between the COVID site and then also what was happening with school meals. And then the biggest really that was the, that was the most um, highly comprehensive was again, when we had our school closure announcement a lot of them, more than 76% of them, specifically mentioned what to do about school meals and where could families and students access this. And again, so we can see a lot of effort was made. We didn't see as much of an effort, maybe maybe collaboration that could be a missed opportunity around partnering with anti-hunger organizations on the right-hand side here. And so maybe that's a missed opportunity for states and jurisdictions to actually have collaborations in place with anti-hunger organizations um, like Feeding America, like No Kid Hungry, like some of our... Um, authors are actually either were or are still working with. And so one of those, you know, key issues that we kind of want to tease out is what could happen here? What could be something that could come from this for future reference? And so again, I mentioned just a few examples here. So some strong examples I wanted to highlight, and these are direct quotes from websites of these um, jurisdictions. But um, when we had state declaration and what was that referring, was that referring to school, um, a meal site. So right here we have a direct quote that says, if an LEA closes, provide school meals with a non-congregate settings from a food service program. So they're really outlining, okay, well, if this closes, then what do we do in line with not only implementing some of food service program and FSO, but how do we actually do that and what's some of the guidance? Um, some of the really strong communication and outreach came from um, for parents section of websites where they had multiple languages to try and make sure that parents could access the information that they needed. 
providing an update Q&A. Maybe this could be in, um, in the form of actually like submitting questions to the website or just an updated list for parents. Um, and so many jurisdictions went above and beyond to provide that clarification so that parents had the information they needed if they didn't have that from their school or just as a way to kind of corroborate what they were hearing from their school district. Some really nice um, partnerships regarding anti-hunger organizations. Uh, a few jurisdictions actually had this really great website that was linked onto their main agency website, whether it be the education or agriculture agency that highlighted the partnership. They also helped with um, either using their software. So for instance, Feeding America on some states and, and um, territories actually had their own kind of linked website where people could actually find school meal sites. Um, and then again, education page referencing, there was a lot of kind of cross-coaching across different areas of um, different websites, whether it be the education page, the agriculture page, or, or the public health domain. There's a lot of cross-pollination here to try and promote or increase the chance that someone might see the information they need to actually access school meals. And so this is a nice visual, but again, to tell the whole story, you can kind of see that we tried to use GIS. And so one of our co-authors, Dr. McGurt, who's at UNC Greensboro, did a really amazing job of helping us to not only map our coding onto a map, but then also try and visualize where are some of the, of the spots in our country that are kind of succeeding well with, with outreach in different areas. And so we actually got produced maps and that's in the paper as well to sort of highlight which potential areas we're looking at that are the strongest and where might coverage need, need a little bit more support. We disseminated this through lots of webinars. We had ongoing calls with the USDA, um, with, with um, the FRAC, with um, SNA, and other different groups that we wanted to try and engage and also try and help us figure out how best to disseminate it. We had an open brief and obviously the paper in JNEB, which is amazing. Uh, JNEB also did a really fantastic thing where they actually made all papers around um, COVID and school meals open access. And so that was a really nice way to help us disseminate this. And then we also, uh, I was able to speak on a BBC Food Chain podcast about this article and about just raising awareness around how this language and how this implementation guidance can really help and also areas where we have to improve for future um, and ongoing issues. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit for the last sort of five or ten minutes of our talk before we hand it off to uh, Margaret to talk about some of the future of, of the NOPRIM group and kind of show you a bit about how this article that we wrote and, and the research that led to 2020 is leading to some of our current work and how we can understand policy implementation through a different lens. So as Dr. DeSilva mentioned, I'm an implementation scientist, and so coming with this um, teacher background, coming into the school meals piece, the school wellness is really important. And so how do we actually implement um, these policies, whether it be our waivers from the USDA, whether it be just national school lunch policy or district policy on maybe CEP or universal school meals? How do we do that with an XD lens to make sure that we actually are doing the best that we can for the communities that we're serving? And so implementation science gives us a really nice lens and a framework for trying to accomplish that. And I'll go into more depth in just a moment, but this is one paper that we wrote um, with my mentor, Dr. Martinez at Temple, um, just around we can, how we can use implementation science to achieve health equity. And so we start with our evidence-based in interventions, such as um, nutrition assistance or in um, Dr. Martinez's case, HIV care. How do we provide implementation support and actually evaluate the implementation of that policy? using um, equity-focused measurement tools, and then just ongoing dissemination with our partners. And we really did do that over the last 
um, three years with our anti-hunger organisation partners and with our government partners to try and understand what was happening on the ground, to feedback and to hopefully revise and modify the policy that was actually being implemented. And so through that, we had to elicit improved capacity for implementation at the school and the district level, but also at the state and federal level as well. And then really trying to understand where are we missing the mark, where are some blind spots regarding equity and implementation with the goal that we can actually help to reduce these disparities regarding food security and obesity and other issues that we're seeing from the pandemic. And so I, kept, I mentioned this a little bit, but one of the policies that we're looking at now is the CEP, which basically provides all high poverty schools and districts with the opportunity to have free school meals for all of their students, if enough of those students qualify. And so one of the nice things that we've seen over the last 10 years is an ongoing increase in the number of eligible schools and districts actually adopting CEP. One of the issues that we're seeing, and this is particularly the case in Philadelphia, is a decrease or an overall lack of participation on the student's part. And there are certain things that we probably could assume as to why that might be. But again, we don't really have a lot of data on that. And this is important because if we don't study the downstream effects of implementation and try to refine some of those issues, we won't really be able to help modify or change the policy on the upstream. So when it comes to talking with our partners at the USDA, how can we actually deliver information that they can rely on to help them make informed decisions about policy in the first place? So this is actually a KO1 award that was given that was awarded to me um, and my team in February. And so what this is is um, providing is five years of, of implementation support and funding to develop a meaningful partnership with the School District Philadelphia, so that it's very much them and I and our team working together on trying to increase uptake in school meals. To do that, we're using implementation mapping, which is basically very similar to intervention mapping, but we're trying to understand how to implement something that's already existing, but do it better. Um, so in, that, in our case, it's the school meals program that provides free breakfast and lunch to students. And so, Right now, we're just beginning our needs assessment phase, and we're working with lots of schools in the district to try and assess not only from their um, food service providers and their teachers and administrators, but also their students and their parents. Um, what is it that kind of makes them want to take part in school meals, and and how do they perceive school meals as a way to get um, that nutrition, increase their health, but also avoid hunger? And so we hope that from this first task, this needs assessment that's going to help us build on to thinking, well, what are the outcomes that we want to achieve and how can we do that in a collaboration and then also find ways to actually test um, and evaluate and see how, if, if we are actually imp improving um, uptake of school meals. And that's a really nice way to sort of embed a collaboration with an ongoing federal grant to really try and understand what's happening from the ground up as opposed to trying to implement something from the top down that might not actually work or be a good fit for this district. And through doing our national assessment, that really gave us a clear understanding of, yes, these policies say this, but that doesn't mean that's happening on the ground. And so we really want to make sure that we're getting the information we need from the right people. And in our case, the end users that have unfortunately been overlooked in lots of research, they really are driving this. And so this is the kind of overview of what this kind of hopes to achieve. But again, we're very much in this aim one at the moment, and we're using different frameworks to try and address some of these issues and I'll go through actually this middle one here in just a second and kind of walk through what we actually are trying to do in terms of how do we apply the health equity framework to a school nutrition policy implementation issue. And then again, one of the things that 
folks that are kind of coming into implementation science aren't too aware of is, well, how does how do we test things in a randomized way, but also unfun implementation? You know, we can't do both. Well, we actually can, because the nice thing about implementation science and the trial design of implementation is that we can accomplish both implementation and effectiveness at the same time through what we call a hybrid trial. And so we kind of take the conventional randomized control trial and kind of tweak it a little bit to make sure that we're actually looking at implementation from the very beginning. And so that's what we're going to do in this, in this five-year award. And then the last kind of slide I'll share with this is how we're using the Get Into Equity framework, which is actually built by the um, human Nika, who's at Drexel. And one of the really great pieces of this framework is this is a very much a process-driven framework to help us understand how we can actually build capacity for implementation. And so it was actually developed to help um, researchers and policymakers reduce obesity, prevent, obesity prevalence, excuse me, really through building on the capacity of the community. And um, these four quadrants, we've got increased healthy options, reduce deterrence to healthy behaviors, build community capacity, and then improve social and economic resources. A lot of these um, actions that are kind of sprouting out from those four quadrants are really aiming to address issues of inequity. So not only providing healthy options, but also reducing deterrence. How do you reduce discrimination, exclusion, or stigma? Um, and then this bottom two pieces are really the how we get to do that. So how do we actually increase our healthy options and reduce the tariff? And so trying to map this onto some of the implementation issues we see at hand could look like what we see in this table onto the right-hand side. So whether we increase our healthy options, what's our intervention? Well, our intervention is that we have universal school meals, but we have to actually increase the station into it and then also examine the quality. Are we feeding our students the right uh, nutrition? Are we actually providing them the best opportunity to be healthy as they can be? And then again, we can parents, we can look at stigma or the barriers to access, building on community capacity. So can we leverage networks that already exist? And then thinking about improving social and um, economic resources really kind of ties back to that last coding piece in our national study, because we really wanted to understand what was the degree of collaboration with anti-hunger organizations and other advocacy groups that could really help and raise the profile of school meals. And so that really feeds in nicely to this model because it really is a whole component of it. And so we want to make sure that we're actually working with, not competing with, other organizations that are trying to do very similar things and achieve the similar goal. So just some next steps and Again, I, I can I cannot state this further. I really would not have gotten this grant or kind of been involved in this research if it wasn't for the NOPRIN group. Um, and just really having this real world understanding through rapid cycle research, listening to people who are just genuinely doing the work. I wouldn't have gotten to this point without the work that we had led with the nationwide study. And so three goals here, I think, for at least for my work, and I think I kind of speak for the team and we all kind of have a we all have a desire to improve understanding of what's happening on implementation. We want to also try to um, develop tailored interventions, whether it's at the federal level or the district level or the state level, which increase capacity for implementation. We already have policies that are designed to address issues like hunger in place, but how can we increase capacity for implementation of those policies, making sure that our federal goal is well spent. And then trying to understand well, what are the outcomes that we can feasibly understand are beyond just reach or beyond just the cost. And so thinking about how do we look at cost and implementation? How do we look at some sustainability features here, et cetera? 
So that's kind of really the encapsulation of how this national study fed into the work that's going on right now and just hopefully gives you an idea of the structure of this work. I'm going to pass it on to um, Margaret, who's one of the chairs of the current work group, to kind of explain more about how the current um, structure of this work group is, is unfolding now and then some of the goals for the future. Thanks, Gabby. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I'm one of the current co-chairs um, of this work group. And also, uh, uh, at the time earlier of all of this great COVID work, I was with Share Our Strength. Um, but as of a few months ago, I'm now the Senior Director of Impact and Evaluation at Partnership for a Healthy America. Next slide, please. So with um, earlier this year, with the public health emergency um, ending the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we decided as a work group to come together and figure out and chart what's the next direction. Even though um, you know there will be more papers and more um, research coming out of uh, the COVID-19, we wanted to make sure that we were you know kind of staying on top of the topic as well as um, keeping our work group members interested. So we paused um, the work group meeting and we did a survey with our members to kind of get some feedback and also of course had conversations with HER and Oprin. So as a result of all of that time thinking, um, we have now decided as of last week, so this is our brand new name, um, is that we will now be uh, called the HER Noprin Resilient Food Systems and Nutrition Work Group. Um, so it's myself and my fellow co-chair, Dr. Lauren Clay, that's been mentioned before, who's a disaster scientist at the University of Maryland. Um, our mission, um, so in our, a little bit of a pivot, um, but only slightly from um, direction of the work group, there are our missions to build a collaborative interdisciplinary network of researchers, leaders from academia, nonprofits, government, and other funding agencies, so that we continue to focus on and increase the quantity, the quality, and the availability of research in the area of food and nutrition. So we want to make sure that we continue the momentum um, and that we continue the great work um, from this work group. So we want to make sure that we're responding to the research needs um, identified by policymakers and advocates. We want to make sure that we describe the disruptions, um, the impact of the disruption and environmental changes on food and, and nutrition related outcomes. Um, identify, evaluate, and disseminate um, best practices, and also facilitate the development and implementation of evidence-informed nutrition-related resiliency and disaster preparedness policies. So I know that that is a mouthful. Um, next slide, please. This um, describes our work group goals. So we want to continue to identify, evaluate, and disseminate um, most effective strategies as it relates to diet quality, food security, and overall health and well-being um, of children and families before, during, and after disruptions or environmental changes. Um, so it's largely this is, you know, about climate change, about um, disruptions, uh, weather-related disruptions, whatnot, that affect um, populations. And listed below is some of our longer-term goals as well, too. Next slide, please. Um, so we will be meeting starting in October again. Um, we will continue the same schedule of third Thursday of every month from two to three Eastern Standard Time. Um, and like I said, uh, myself and Lauren Clay will continue to be the co-chairs. Um, if you or know of someone who's interested in being a fellow, this is typically um, grad students, postdocs, please let us know. 
Um, and on this right below is my email address as well as Lauren and Lauren Clay. Um, because this is our new name and it's been approved, you know, our mission, our goals of this work group, um, it has not been updated on the website, but a lot of what Gabby and um, Caroline uh, talked about earlier, you can find on the website um, of the Noprin website, which I dropped the link there below. And that concludes not just my portion, but the portion um, of the this presentation. So I'm not sure who to turn it back to, but I will pass the baton to someone. Thank you so much. It was really great to hear about all of the work that you all have done and what's coming in the future. If people have questions, please feel free to put those in the Q&A box or in the chat box so I can share those with our speakers. Um, so my first question for you is, as you're talking to schools moving forward or people working with children, what advice would you give them from what you've learned um, for the next uh unprecedented event that's coming up. Um, I'm not sure, like, maybe this is just me thinking a bit more broadly, but I'm not sure that I'm the one that should be giving advice. I think that we're still learning from them because they're the ones that have been you know, working so hard to get their programs back on track. So I think one of the things that I've been learning over the last year or two is that I need to really first listen and synthesize what I'm hearing before I kind of go back and tell schools especially those that are in large districts that haven't really got the autonomy to like do as much for themselves um that's one thing that I've experienced for sure is more just to listen rather than to be given the advice right now um but I, my colleagues feel free to, to chime in here and give some thoughts as to what you've been doing Sorry, it took a second to unmute. So I, I will respond with a little bit kind of more blanket as, as what I think would be helpful in a more general sense, not specifically for schools, but for us as researchers too, which is I think communication is key. And the more clearly we can communicate about things, both availability of, of services and also communicate about what we're finding in research and how that can be applied and having kind of those open discussions, I think the more we can be transparent in that communication as researchers, again, the the more useful those interactions are going to be. So I think to me, that would be the, the thing that I would lift up the most is consistent and clear communication. Agree um, to what Gabby and Caroline just said, um, especially when you are doing research on um, where you're trying to find practical solutions or practical best practices. So for example, you know, looking at um, communication, but making sure that, you know, you're, you know, the full list of things um, of what you're communicating on. So Gabby's paper on that, of assessing that is uh, a great example of, um, you know, being able to find a product that is helpful information to non-scientists um, and that it's just kind of practical every day. Thank you. That's really helpful to think about. And I, I like that the listening to other people, making sure you're communicating well is so important. Um, Gabby, could you tell us a little more about what it would look like if to combine a randomized controlled trial and an implementation study or to do those simultaneously? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, that little bit. 
So to take a kind of traditional randomized control trial and make it an implementation hybrid, we kind of have to start with what do we know about the intervention or the evidence-based practice already. And so depending on how much we do know, whether it's, you know, very little, or we just have a testable hypothesis, we start with something called a hybrid type one, which is where we kind of focus more deeply on the effectiveness piece and then kind of focus up like most of our attention on that and then include um, potential initial implementation outcomes we want to understand, such as, you know, is it feasible? Is it acceptable? Is it, um, is it pilotable, basically? And is it something that, that, that our partners are, you know, practitioners or implementers actually are interested in doing? And those would be the sort of main implementation outcomes that we'd look at. And then kind of depending on how much information you have, if you want to do a hybrid type two, that's kind of more of an equal focus on implementation and efficacy. And so we try to understand both of those pieces. This could be something like you've got a small scale policy or intervention with some pilot data, but you're trying to understand, you know, is it still working if we scale it up? And then also how we focus on some of the determinants to implementing it. So things like um, cultural issues or factors within or outside the school setting that are, are um, are kind of shaping how this is being implemented and then kind of for the hybrid type three just what i'm doing is really good for policy scientists because a lot of the policies that we're trying to study have been around for a while but there are clear implementation gaps or potential implementation kind of blind spots that kind of made out or maybe there's also factors that we aren't kind of uncovering that we probably need to be starting to uncover and um so that's really what I'm focusing on and trying to understand how to implement something that's already existing with potential new ways of doing that or new additions that we can add to it. And then you test that and understand not only the um, implementation, which is the primary focus, but then are there any kind of secondary health outcomes or other kind of behavioral outcomes that you're interested in to so kind of doing it that way? Because um, you already have fantastic research to show that taking part in our preschool meals is a much better um way to kind of reduce food security and also improve dietary intake so kind of like depends on what your questions are but there's different ways to kind of um, integrate implementation science into these trials yeah thank you that no that helped provide a lot of of clarity so i appreciate it um and then if someone were to want to either start doing implementation science or start working in this area of food security so i guess that's two different questions what advice would you get to them as to how to get started um, and that's for any of you can answer that <laughs> yeah i mean joining the group like margaret said is the best way to get involved in some of this work because they've been doing this work for a long time um with the implementation there's diff there's actually lots of free trainings to start building on and different groups to start working with so i'll actually drop one free training in the chat um that could be that could be um an initial starting point for anybody who wants to get involved in implementation science and there's also lots of people who are doing policy implementation science now um in, in other areas like mental health um cancer hiv etc and then there's a few of us myself and then handling who was mentioned in Caroline's slide um, and other folks who are doing kind of more policy implementation facts regarding schools and, and addressing food security. So um, I'm happy to put my email in the chat as well and answer any questions, but there's, there's definitely resources. Yeah, anyone else want to weigh in on their thoughts? 
I will say, I think Gabby and I actually had a lot of the same training around implementation science. Um, another interesting area that you can look at if you're interested is CDC has several implementation science resources that are wonderful, as well as Washington University um, has some, some lovely resources if you want to learn more about kind of that approach. Um, I will take this opportunity again to kind of plug, though, the availability of just different opportunities to get involved in the work of NOPR and to learn a little bit more about some of the methodologies that were done today. Um, learn a little bit more about some of the research that's going on and also find opportunities to collaborate. Um, I think this paper was actually a really wonderful just example of, of multiple people coming together with different backgrounds and expertise because we were all part of the same working group um, and we're able to each bring a different perspective, a different data source and a different way of asking a question and answering a question to the same table. Um, and, and I will say, I think several of us have been involved in multiple uh, of these NOPRIN groups as either fellows or as leaders or as members. Um, and it's really, again, similar to being part of different SNAB groups. It's, it's an opportunity to learn what other people in the research and in the advocacy and in the implementation space are doing. Um, so really, I would say, you know, looking for some of those opportunities to plug in. And though I did enter into NOPRIN as a fellow and highly recommend that kind of pathway, I think even seasoned and experienced researchers who are looking to learn new methodologies or understand a little bit um, a different perspective from something can really benefit from those types of opportunities. Um, so would highly recommend you know, exploring that in, as an opportunity to learn new skills. I'll just add, I dropped uh, NOPRIN's link um, in the chat, um, and there are many, like 10-ish um, different work groups. So even if, you know, you're not interested in the one I talked about earlier, there's a lot to choose from. So I highly encourage you, you check out the website. Well, I want to thank you all for being here today. I know I learned a lot from your presentation and really appreciate your time and your expertise that you shared with us. Um, today. So at this point, I can hand it back to Paul. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, and thank you all of the panelists who were able to make it here today uh, to share a little bit more of your knowledge with everyone. Uh, we truly appreciate it. Um, as Rachel mentioned at the top of the webinar, uh, there is a survey that you will receive after the end of the webinar. Uh, please take the time to fill that out. We do really appreciate your feedback. Uh, be on the lookout for an email uh, with the recording of today's session, uh, the relevant handouts and your CEU certificate. Uh, if you enjoyed today's webinar, uh, remember that uh, next week there was another journal club session and we hope to see you at that. Uh, and that closes out our session for today. So. Thank you again to all of our panelists and thank you to our attendees for coming as well. Have a good day.